Omicron. It's pronounced Omicron. I had to do research on that. I was not sure. I was like, is it Omicron? It's Omicron. At least that's how Bloomberg News is pronouncing it, so... Maybe we still need to research that. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. A very interesting episode ahead. We have Mark Bristow at the Global Mining Symposium, interviewed by Northern Miner publisher Anthony Vaccaro. All sorts of little tidbits. Very interesting things. You know, it's interesting to get inside the mind of, you know, one of the top executives in the gold mining industry. I mean, he was describing it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I heard in there is he was sort of describing this as a kind of top of the gold market. Now, I think what he meant by that is top in terms of margins, because I think he sees inflation coming and his costs are getting more expensive. And he talks about inflation too, super interestingly, but let's finish on this point. I think what he meant by the top of the gold market was in terms from a company perspective, margins are not going to get any better than what the gold miners had been seeing in the last year and a half with low energy prices and high gold prices, historically speaking. Maybe not for us investors, we might consider it that high, but compared to where it was, you know, 10 years ago, every ounce they mine, they're getting at least 50% more. So I think that's what he meant. So all sorts of very interesting little things. And, you know, when Anthony asked Mark about inflation, I mean, it was really interesting. It was like a quick, strong reaction. Inflation is definitely on its way unambiguous. And I think this is something that I think we can assume that gold miners and just the mining industry in general, it's going to become a bigger issue because my impression from this conversation was that margins are going to start to come down. Now, isn't that interesting from just like an investment perspective? What does that mean when you have these stocks that are kind of beat up, but they're actually, does that mean they're going to be making less money so it's kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm not sure how this all, you know, falls together. There's a lot for you to chew on in this interview, as one would expect. I mean, this was done before the news of Omicron, which came on Thanksgiving in the middle of a very nice rally that had begun on Thanksgiving and then just cut short by the news of Omicron. Now, Just thoughts on that. I mean, probably a lot of you have already seen this. I mean, it seemed pretty bad at first, the news of Omicron. And the more you kind of unpack it, the doctor, as a lot of you have probably already read about, I mean, the doctor in South Africa who's dealt with a lot of these cases, she was describing the symptoms as, quote, extremely mild. And that, in fact, people aren't even losing their sense of smell. And you think, like... If this thing, Omicron, is highly contagious and outcompetes Delta and everything else to become the dominant form and the symptoms are actually quite light, just you know, severe tiredness, uh, this in fact could actually be good news, shockingly. So, I mean, very early and very speculative, but I think that's what some people are starting to think. Now, markets are rattled. I don't think we're going to see a repeat of March 2020. So in fact, I I think this could be a great news story, ironically. Who knows? I mean, just 
again, pure speculation. Now, if we look at our oracle, the 10-year bond, it has fallen. So it is down at, let's get a number here, 1.426% on the 10-year yield. So we were up at around 1.6 as recently as last week. So we are down. I mean, one of the things that the bond market has been telling us over the last few weeks, we could say, a few months even, is that it's skeptical of this inflation story. I mean, we've been seeing 6% inflation in, I think, October. It's been actually quite persistent, as people call it. Yet the bond market is not reflecting this. I mean, again, if you're in 6% inflation and then you get a 10-year bond for 1.42%, that would suggest that like, that, that doesn't make sense, right? Unless the bond market, which is supposed to be the smartest market out there, unless it thinks that this inflation thing is not going to last. So you could say it's manipulated or you could just say the bond market actually feels that way. If we turn to our industrial metals, they remain very healthy. I mean, we have copper at, what do we have, $4.37 a pound, you know, aluminum dollar nineteen, nickel above $9, zinc, you know, $1.51, tin at $18.27. So industrial metals remain elevated. Meanwhile, precious metals, you know, gold back below $1,800, silver at like Poultry, $22.92. So industrial metals remain the inflation hedge. At least so far in this cycle, let's see what happens. I mean, this gold trade has been, you know, it's been very unfair. <laughs> it's been very unfair to gold investors as long as I've been involved in this industry since 2010. I mean, we've had some flashes of brilliance in the gold price, but really, when you consider the amount of time uh, that we have been waiting, the opportunity cost, uh, you know, it, it's not an easy trade. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can also find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, and we have a story by Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Mining Journal. And it says here, Feds and BC government launch Climate Resilience Committee in wake of devastating floods. Let's take a closer look. Now, the federal and B.C. governments have formed a new committee to address climate resilience in British Columbia following the devastating flooding, mudslides, and damage to highways and rail infrastructure in southwestern British Columbia this month. The heavy rainfalls that caused the damage also prompted the evacuation of flood-affected communities and has resulted in at least four deaths. The formation of the committee, which was announced on Friday, is aimed at ensuring communities including remote and indigenous communities have access to immediate support and resource needed. The federal government said in a release, the committee will also provide supports to the sectors most impacted by extreme weather events and collaborate to rebuild in ways that better protect the population from future climate events. And so some miners have been affected by the damage. Uh, and it says here, primarily as transport and supply routes have been disrupted. 
Sentara Gold noted shipping of concentrates from its Mount Milligan mine, 155 kilometers northwest of Prince George, has been disrupted as has shipping of consumables to site. Tech Resource, which operates metallurgical coal operations in BC, as well as its Highland Valley Copper Mine, 17 kilometers west of Logan Lake, and its Trail Zinc and Lead Smelting Refining Complex near Trail BC has also been affected. Canadian Pacific Rail and Canadian National Railway have both resumed a limited service between Prince George and Vancouver and Kamloops to Vancouver. However, repairs are ongoing and more heavy rains are expected this week. So, I mean, it's actually a pretty serious situation, clearly, uh, what's going on over there. The torrential rain in November followed a destructive forest fire season in BC this year, with the province declaring a state of emergency on July 20th and lifting it on September 21st. So... They have been dealing with a lot of challenges over there. Finally, the committee will be co-chaired by Bill Blair, president of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada and Minister of Emergency Preparedness, and Mike Farnsworth, deputy premier and minister of public safety and solicitor general of British Columbia. Additional members of the committee are yet to be announced. The committee is intended to build on the joint federal-provincial supply chain recovery group announced on November 20th. So just an interesting story in Canada... We have another one here in Saskatchewan. Rio Tinto grabs 51% stake in Janice Lake Copper Silver Project in Saskatchewan. And this is by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says that Rio Tinto Exploration Canada is set to become the majority owner of Forum Energy Metals, Janice Lake Copper Silver Project in Saskatchewan, according to Forum Energy Metals. After spending $14 million on exploration which exceeds the $10 million required to earn a 51% stake in the property. The mining giant has decided not to spend any further on surveying the property, Forum said. Rio Tinto is now due to pay Forum Energy $100,000 in cash on or before May 2022 to complete its 51% earning obligation. Well, if you're Rio Tinto, I mean $100,000, why wouldn't they? Uh, I got I mean, $100,000, like... Uh, $100,000. Maybe they're... Anyways, let's keep reading. Quote, Rio Tinto's drilling and regional exploration has added tremendous value to the Janus Lake project, most notably at the Janus and Jansom targets where drilling has significantly expanded high-grade copper mineralization. Forum Energy's president and CEO Rick Mazur said in a press release, you know, I must not have enough information on this deal because I don't understand why several adults and two companies are all working you know, on a project over a $100,000 deal. Uh, There must be a lot of other stuff going on here that I don't understand. Continuing on, he noted that his company will focus on its uranium portfolio during the first quarter of 2022, which includes plans to begin drilling at Forum's 100% owned Wollaston Uranium property nearby the Orano and Cameco uranium mills in the eastern Athabasca Basin. Rio Tinto, which optioned the project in May 2019, had the choice to earn an 80% interest in Janice Lake by spending $30 million in addition to making separate option payments to Forum Energy Metals and Transition Metals Corporation. So it sounds like they'd much rather go for the $100,000 option and get 51%. That sounds like a much better deal and just easier. So this sounds bullish on the project, but they didn't want to spend an additional $30 million in order to get 80%. So kind of a mixed story there. Anyways, it's always interesting to hear about copper in Saskatchewan. That does turn my head because you don't really think of Saskatchewan as copper country, traditionally at least. Another move in Canada, Agnico Eagle raises stake in white gold. And this is by Jackson Chen. 
White Gold has arranged a non-brokered private placement of flow-through and common shares to raise proceeds of $9 million. Pursuant to an investor's rights agreement signed in December 2016, Agnico Eagle Mines has indicated that it will increase its interest in the company to 19.9% on a post-offering basis. And we have a quote from White Gold CEO David Donofrio. Quote, we are very grateful for the continued support of our exciting and impactful exploration activities in the prolific White Gold District. Details on our future activities will be provided in due course. And I think the interesting thing here is White Gold is the largest landholder within the Yukon's emerging White Gold District, with a portfolio of 31 properties covering more than 420,000 hectares, representing over 40% of the district. The company's flagship and namesake property hosts the Golden Saddle and Arc deposits, and the shares are trading at $0.70 per share within a $0.45 to $0.85 per share range with a market cap of $93.2 million. So if you're Ignico Eagle and you're looking to grow, particularly through exploration, again, you know, for $9 million in a non-brokered private placement of flow-through and common shares, sounds like a pretty good deal. $9 million. So Agnico owns basically 20% of the company now, from what I understand. So I guess they like what they see. And frankly, you know, it's sort of like the last story. For $9 million, you might as well, you know, increase your share in the company that owns 40% of an emerging gold district in the Yukon. Sounds pretty promising to me. Continuing on, Hummingbird Resources shares drop after halting... Mali Mine, and this is just an interesting, I always like West Africa to just see what's going on from a security perspective. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Shares in Hummingbird Resources fell as much as 20% on Monday after it halted operations at its Yanfolila gold mine in southern Mali. The company's only producing mine on safety concerns. The miner said unrest and illegal roadblocks in the region had impacted its ability to safely continue mining at Yanfolila, adding the operation will remain closed until conditions improve. Hummingbird warned the stoppage will affect full-year production, placing it below the bottom end of the 2021 guidance range. The miner had expected to produce between 100 and 110,000 ounces of gold from the project this year. And we have a quote from CEO Dan Betts, who said in a statement, quote, the government of Mali is aware of the situation and is actively engaged in resolving these disruptions, and we anticipate the situation will be short-lived. And the company said the current illegal action is from a small minority, according to the company, and not representative of the communities where the company operates. So, I mean, a pretty small mining company, but in that part of the world, it can be pretty tricky from a security perspective. So it's always good to keep your antennae up. This sounds like a tempest in a teapot, at least according to the company, but let's see. Continuing on to our last story here, Oxico plans to build a $116 million rare earth refinery in Colombia. So we see further diversification from China in the rare earths industry. This is by Maryland Scales. Oxico Resources Canada is making plans to build a 10,000 square meter rare earth refinery in the free trade zone in the city of Santa Marta, Colombia, with a throughput of 36,000 tons per year, the estimated cost of the plant will be $116 million. The company said this will be the first rare earth refinery in the Western Hemisphere. 
It has already signed a lease with an option to purchase four lots within the Zona Franca Tirona Industrial Park. Now, I think the what's going on in Saskatchewan, there's a rare earth processing facility, but I don't know if that's considered a refinery. So this is the first rare earth refinery in the Western Hemisphere, according to Oxico. Oxico's plant will incorporate standard metallurgical processes plus innovative extraction technologies. The goal is to build a plant with low energy consumption, significantly shorter and cost-effective cycles, and an overall lower environmental impact. Feed for the new refinery will come from Oxico's properties, currently under development in Colombia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. The company is also finalizing supply agreements with producers in Brazil and Bolivia. So interesting, more rare earth refineries outside of China. So probably good for the world in general if we have more diversification in that area. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 30th, gold is trading at $1,793.52 per ounce. That is $4 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $22.92 per ounce. That is $0.98 cents lower than last week. And platinum is trading at $955.78 per ounce. That is $49 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,799.35 per ounce. That is $113 lower. Getting a 17 handle on the palladium price. That is interesting. So, yeah, we haven't seen that for quite some time. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.37 per pound. That is a penny higher. Aluminum is trading two cents lower at $1.19 per pound. Lead is trading three cents higher at $1.04 per pound. Nickel is trading 12 cents higher at $9.18 per pound. Tin is trading 24 cents higher at $18.27 per pound. Cobalt is also trading higher at $28.39 per pound. That is 72 cents higher than last week. And zinc is trading five cents higher at $1.51 per pound. Taking a look, precious metals lower. Industrial metals stay elevated with, you know, again, they just spring back up like a beach ball. In water, whenever they go down, they just spring back up. They have a spring in their step. I mean, tin, $18.27. Cobalt, $28.39. Nickel, $9.18. Looking nice and healthy. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Barrick Gold President and CEO Mark Bristow. At the Global Mining Symposium, he's interviewed by Northern Miner Group Publisher Anthony Vaccaro. And they discuss all things from leadership and dealing with governments and getting deals done to the gold industry, to inflation, macroeconomics, and more. So I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. with Mark Bristol. Mark is joining us from London, but of course, for those in the industry that know, 
Mark is a bit famous for having more frequent flyer points than probably anyone else in our industry. Mark, with all that travel, I thought it'd be fun just to start off. What are your tips to stay healthy for an international traveler like yourself? So uh, you try and fit in four to five days of exercise a week. And if you miss out, try and catch up. So that's what I try and do. Uh, you know, just a bit of exercise and, and walk. I, I do a lot of walking. Excellent. Mark, I thought I'd like to kind of get going with, uh, in honor of the fact the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame recently uh, announced uh, the inductees or the members for 2022. Now, Barrick has one of the strongest presence in the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame with three members, Peter Bunk, Bob Smith, Brian Meikle. You have stated in the past that even at your days at Roundgold, that Peter and Bob were a big influence on you at Rangold. So I'd kind of like to start a little bit there. How are those names, Brian, Bob, Peter, how are they still part of the, the Barrick fabric uh, to this day? Of course, Peter is a standout entrepreneur. And, you know, we don't have enough of those in the mining industry anymore. And, uh, you know, because mining is a high-risk business, to be successful, you have to draw on creativity and knowledge. And then you've got to be able to be strong enough to take the risk and successful miners are often uh, come in combinations and a perfect combination was Peter and Bob. And, you know, Peter brought the culture and character to Barrick and, and Bob did the grunt work. And if you look through the mining history, when you load up with too many, and not that I have anything against accountants or lawyers or promoters, but when they get too, too dominant in the board, and there are many, many examples of, of the companies losing their way. And, and so, you know, I think that combination was great. It, it also has, like Rand Gold, you know, I always talk, uh, you know, one is because I, I modeled uh, Rand Gold on that early barrack, that very entrepreneurial, we can do it, small uh, head office or no head office, uh, act like owners. And, uh, and of course, those uh, gentlemen were owners. And I think the memory is still there in uh, in in barrack as it is uh, now in the new merged uh, company and i think those things if you can keep them alive they're important you know memories of you know a dna of an organization and that's what i've spent the last two years doing is really re-establishing that dna that real uh, moral and, and entrepreneurial structure of what made barrack so successful Excellent. Does that feed in? I mean, my question was going to be, how do you recruit for the next Hall of Famer, given that Barrick now is such a, I mean, those early days of Barrick now to being one of the global leaders, very different demands, different challenges. How do you approach that? You know, like we, like I believe mining companies need to invest in their future. And, uh, and if you don't invest in your future, it's a consumptive industry, it dies. Likewise, we need to invest in our people. And, and that's something that the industry has neglected. And so it's not whether we recruit Hall of Fame potential candidates. We need to grow them. And more than ever, this industry needs to grow. It needs to invest in its future human capital. Because for too long now, we've sort of lived off an aging uh, leadership in the mining industry. And... And so that's certainly, it's the way we built Rand Gold Resources. Um, it's, it's the early stages of, uh, you know, I always remind people when we started, when I started, when Peter started, we didn't have all that many, many years of experience. 
but we had good people around us. And so, and I've, I fundamentally believe we need to invest in our young people because if we're going to take our real place in the world, the global economy, we've got to be more acceptable to future generations. And you don't do that without young people. Absolutely. Are you seeing, I mean, it's a big challenge of our industry. We do have, as you said it beautifully, we have all that intellectual capital with, with an aging demographic. Are you seeing any traction? I mean, you're the type of executive that's on the ground, you're visiting mines, you're in touch with a, a lot of people. You probably see more of the industry than any of us do in a lifetime. You see it in a year. Are you seeing positive traction there? Are you seeing touch points or ideas that are connecting with that younger generation and making them want to come into our industry? Absolutely, uh, Anthony. Um, you know, uh, again, in West, in Africa, if you look at our African teams, uh, which we trained, some of our executive leadership in Africa today join me as, as students, and they're now leaders, and, and they're African. And we have got a, a situation here where, where we have better skills in Africa, which is a lot younger as a mining destination than, uh, than we have in parts of North America. And what we've done, even through COVID, is we've really reached out to the young people in Nevada because we believe in, in investing in our host country human capital. And, you know, Nevada is as, probably as big as most of our countries we operate in. And so we look at uh, Nevada as a, as a country, effectively. And, and again, we had too many expatriates in Barrick. We had lost the DNA. We had lost its mojo. And we needed to reestablish that. And so, and you know, when you put all the different cultures together that I did in, um, in the beginning of 2019, to get one culture, you need a single set of DNA. And therefore, you have to in, invest in education, both internally and externally. And the best way to change a culture is to bring in young people because they're more creative. You know, the young people of today, first of all, they teach themselves. And secondly, they have a vision and they want to be part of something that's constructive. So the very nature of having younger people in your organization, you set a new set of criteria for why you come to work in the morning. Excellent. I think that speaks to the reinvigoration that uh, you've brought to the, to the Barrick team for sure. I'd like to kind of focus a little bit on the actual business now. Obviously, this incredible record of success with Rangold, that maybe feels like a lifetime ago for you now. I don't know, even though it was only three years ago. But some of the secret sauce that the industry would talk about for Rangold, I mean, you were very vocal about some of the filters you were using, right? The 3 million ounce kind of criteria, high IRR of about 20%, conservative long-term gold price. How has that evolved in the barrack setting? Obviously, a bigger company, different kind of metrics, harder to find, I'm sure, 20% IRR on some of the projects. How, what, are, what are the filters looking like now? We moved from a world-class uh, 3 million ounce, 20% return to a much bigger target because barrack is a much bigger business. Yeah. And we had two of those already. We call them tier one assets. So we now look for more than 5 million ounces, and we want, and bigger assets, uh, you, you know, you get bigger value, but it's harder to get those IRRs up into 20%. So we set the IRR initially at 15%, but essentially what we define as a tier one asset now, and, and you know, everyone in the market sort of <laughs> changed the definition to suit their, their, their circumstances. But the hard definition is 
500,000 ounces a year for more than 10 years, supported by a defined uh, inventory, be it reserves or resources, and at the lower half of the all-in sustaining cost curve. And so, so that really sets out, and there are only like 14 of them in the world. We have six. Uh, we have a couple of assets that are 500,000 ounce producers, but they don't make the financial cut. And so we don't call them tier one. They are big and they're strategic and they're important in our business. And we do those numbers at 1200 long-term goal price. And just to give you some background, I have a standard model we developed in, in back in 1997, 1908, uh, which gave a 20 something return at um, a goal price then of 450. Uh, this is before it went down to 260. And we kept that for a long time. 2007, we lifted it to 650. And then in 2010, we lifted it to 1,000. And we stayed there from uh, 2000 to 2019. And when we did the Barrick deal, and the way we tested it, so we test our long-term goal price against an input model. And what we did in the Barrick deal is that the input model had changed again. And, and we felt it was appropriate to lift it from 1,000 to 1,200. And we did that at the the first round of reserve definition uh, in the end of 2019. And we've kept it ever since. And it's a good discipline. And sure, there's inflation pressures now on the, on the input costs, and we'll manage that. But right now, we see that that discipline keeps the quality of your assets, and it forces you to find them because you can't buy them. And of course, every now and then, there is an opportunity to, to grow through M&A. But it, it definitely prevents you from destroying value in times when the market is paying for deals. Right. Which we saw so much of in the last bull cycle. Oh, um, yeah. and I, I do want to come to that. Well, maybe we'll come to that now. I mean, you have in the past uh, been a vocal critic. You've gotten up in the front that the gold industry you know, needs to smarten up a little bit on uh, return on uh, investment. Do you see that tracking in the right direction that we've come out of that last bear market? I hope that lessons have been learned. There is a critique that they never get learned <laughs> in the cold industry. What's your sense of, in general, how the industry is coming into this next bull market? So it's a very good question. And, and you, you know, um, my critic is that actually through the behavior of many fund managers, we keep forcing the gold industry into a trading uh, platform and not uh, developing long-term value. And so for me in the coming out of 2018 and the, and the engagement, uh, you know, with the Barrick and then the uh, joint venture in Nevada with Newmont and then Newmont's acquisition of Gold Corp and, and, and again, our acquisition of Acacia, and then the Endeavor consolidation in West Africa, and subsequently that, that the, the Kirkland Lake acquisition of Detour, those were all great deals. And they were at the right time of the market and they delivered value. But there were a lot of deals that were left out uh, because, uh, and, and certainly there was interest to consolidate the, the industry. And it was a good time to do it. It was, it was near the bottom of the market, not quite, and you can never, as you know, Anthony, you can't choose the bottom, bottom or the top, but it was a right time. And I was very outspoken about some of these transactions, uh, these single asset companies should be wrapped up because then you can invest on the back of that investment and, uh, you know, fixing broken assets 
in, in an industry where the average life of mine is 10 to 15 years, maybe, and right now it's even less. The average life of mine in the gold industry now is under 10. Makes it more difficult and it makes it more difficult to consolidate the industry. And so it, then it, basically the, the, the fund managers, as they often say, they want to have that control. And, and I think that's unhealthy because the, the amount of, you know, the capital under management in these big public funds now is looking for more and more relevance. So the Newmont deal and the Barrick transaction that consolidated into a big organization really created and attracted significant alternate investors. Right. Um, and Barrick today, and I, I'm really excited about Barrick because we, we also use the opportunity like Rangold did back in the, the last bull market to tidy up the portfolio and focus on value and a horizon that was beyond that of the horizon of the industry. And we did everything we said we would do. We, we migrated the ownership and accountability of the mines to the mine management. We moved the ownership of the ore body and its planning responsibility there. We held those. Uh, so we had to change the management teams to real business people supported by competent technical uh, experts. And we've done that over the last two years and we've invested in people and we've invested in our future. And you would, anybody who's watching Barrick start, starting to see now us talk more and more about the green fields. Last three years, we talked about how do we extend our life of minds. Now we're talking about how do we build on top of that platform? And so, you know, I think, um, you know, the latest round of consolidations, it's near the top of the market, whichever way you look at it, maybe not the absolute top, but when you look at the margins, yep. you know, an industry doesn't just keep these sort of margins all the time. And so, you know, they, you've got to ask yourself the question. And, and I think that if we, as, as I've said before, if we had worked together as management and as uh, fund managers, because we, we're in the same canoe, we could have created more value. And, you know, I think, Coming out of this bull market in the future, that's always the test. Will we better be more valuable then than we were going in? And you know, I, I think the jury's out on that. <laughs> and 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 I think we could have done the, the job better. I think we did it a lot better than the last cycle, a lot. Uh, but there's still more to do. And and the world's changing. So again, you need, you know, I just think you need a better uh management more competent technical people we are short of engineers we need to invest in our our future not only in the sense of exploration all right well that's that's one of the biggest issues of the day so thank you for that i would for me the other big i think for all of us the other big issue of the day is inflation i'd like to tie this to your comments about greenfield so you have you are on the record we need to build more minds the industry listens when you speak mark and that's that's had a ripple effect now, but the, the issue seems to be more mines being built in an inflationary environment. Well, I, I want, uh, this is a two-tier question. One, what is your take on inflation? Are you aligned with the governments that are telling us, oh, this is just, you know, short-term supply chain stuff. This will get sor sorted out. Or is this a larger function of too much money in the system? And two, if it is the latter, if we are in for inflation for a while, how do you mitigate against that if we're building new mines 
ostensibly these would be mines that are being built at the margin. So they're going to be higher cost mine into a cost inflationary environment. How does you're uniquely positioned here as the, the head of one of the most important gold companies to, to give your view on this. What are your thoughts around that? So inflation's definitely on its way. <laughs> That's for sure. Inflation in the gold mining industry specifically. Well, you know, the fact is that, that we've been lazy in the gold mining industry. You know, a few years ago, copper was nearly was in the doldrums and people had a tight, tight in their belts and they, they needed and they put suspended some operations. Gold industry had a long, good run. And, and the, some of the question and some of the points around cost increase in the gold industry gets confused with deteriorating grade. So great quality, the quality of your asset is really, you know, in mining, your revenue is your ore body. Yep. So you understand your ore body, you understand your revenue. And, and the gold industry has not replaced the gold it's mined since the turn of the century. In the last 20 years, it's averaged about 50% of replacement of the total ounces mined, new, new gold mined. So we have a challenge at the same time. So we've got two legs to the inflations inflation, which drives the gold price because you devalue money. And then there's the input costs of your operations. And again, as managers, we should be all about cost control, efficiencies, automation, taking our industry to, to the future. And again, I think there's a lot in there and, and, you know, um, since 2019 in Barrick, we've taken out hundreds of millions of dollars of costs. And just by focusing on that basic, we act like owners. We run our business as though we own the whole business. And I'm excited about, and we still got more to do. And again, when you look at the demands on new ways to generate cleaner energy, and therein should lie further opportunities to uh, improve your one's efficiencies. And likewise, when you look at automation and automation doesn't take jobs away, it just produces higher quality jobs and, and you can mine it drops the grade. It, it increases the life of mine, does lots of good things. And, and if you allow me, Anthony, you know, you think inflation's the problem. We got a major problem globally. As, an, as a global group, as, a, as humanity, because we were well on the way to globalization. When we went into this COVID crisis, you know, everyone was worried about an all everything bubble because everyone was concerned about the market. Suddenly it's all fine because we've, we've grown in three years into insular communities driven by populism and we have driven deglobalization and we can't solve anything in this rapidly growing world as far as people go if we don't act in a global sense. And if we're going to behave in any, any way close to what we did in managing COVID, we're in for a hard time. So I believe this world is, and it will work itself out as it always does, but whenever you get to these points, whether it was 2008 or 1999 or 1987. And I've lived through those, those uh, uh, sort of big corrections in the world. We're due a very big one. Uh, we've worked really hard to bring it about. And I think that 
that's the driver of, you know, you must have your 5%, your mandatory 5% in your investment portfolio in the form of some sort of gold, whether it's physical or equity. And definitely uh, Barrick is going to be part of that. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Peter Monk drove his idea of a big gold business like Barrick was driven by the world's view on South Africa and apartheid. And he felt if he could build a gold business uh, outside South Africa to compete with the then big guerrilla South African mining companies, it was a great business to do. And he got it right. And I think there's in a, in a twist to that the story, definitely gold has a place as does copper in the future of our world. And, uh, and, you know, whilst E of the ESG is absolutely critical and more the environment rather than getting too far away from that, you know, stop polluting our own environment. It's the things we should do, but the S part of it is e as important because if we don't look after poverty and bring the majority of humanity with us and develop the world, we can do all the environmental work we want. We won't be able to deliver a better world for future generations. And I think that that's, you know, we can do it proactively or we can do it through necessity. And I think we've arrived at that point of necessity, you know, and, 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 and I think a big global economic shock will help us appreciate how necessary it is. Mark, there's a lot to unpack there. It leads wonderfully to my next question. Uh, you have a long track record of walking uh, the talk when it comes to social responsibility, when it comes to being able. And I say walking the talk, not lightly. It's one thing for people to say things. It's one thing for people to, you know, donate to local communities. It's another thing to actually engage communities and governments to such a degree that you can build minds where other people can't. <laughs> you did it at Rangold. You've handled some really tough political situations at Barrick and brought them to a positive conclusion. I need to use this time uh, to give you a bit of a platform. What are, are there certain guiding principles that you use that could be a benefit to the rest of the industry? Um, because there's not many. I mean, I think there's you and probably Lucas Lundin would be the two that come to mind that are able uh, to get things done in tough situations. What principles help you do that? You know, I think the most important thing is treat people like people. And with respect, have a, you know, I talk, talked about DNA. That, you know, in, in Rangold and in Barrick, we as a team, as a whole company, you want to sign up because we've got disparate cultures, right? Because we work globally, you know, and, and from different regions, different ethnicities, different, uh, you know, beliefs, uh, different religions. But what glues us together is the DNA, the Barrick corporate DNA. We want to be transparent, honest, accountable, respectful. We do what we say. We respect the environment. Anything we do needs to be uh, able to exploit our partnership vision. We want to be global. Uh, we want to make a difference to all our stakeholders. We recognize our host countries as stakeholders that are as important as our shareholders. And, uh, and the communities around our minds. And the other thing as a global business, we should make a difference, you know? And so it's sort of strange for me to listen to people saying, 
if you want me to invest in you, you need to go back to the United States because it's safe. And I'm saying, if we want to make a difference, you know that we stand by Western and democratic principles. And we're going to go out there and change the world because we do, because we drag infrastructure. We give people their first job. We give them their first qualified job. We, we do things that no one, no other industry does. And so for me that, and that's always been the point, you know, I grew up in apartheid. I witnessed the wrong of apartheid in every, every way. I was a young student when, you know, people started arguing against that uh, uh, political venture and participated in the, the actions to bring it to an end. And, um, and I, you know, I think it taught me a lot. And, and you know, when you, when you, when you witness the, the great leaders of those times, and I, you know, I point specifically to Nelson Mandela, we were, we were all part of that, that era um, as younger people. And he was a little older than me, but, you know, and, and, and the clerk who recently passed away, who was, had the courage to accept that what was being done was wrong. And then all the others, the peace accord. I was a young executive within the Balaran group, but that was part of it. My chairman was the, the chairman of the peace accord. And we learned a lot from each other. And, and um, you know, my, my business training was at Cape Town at, at the very time, you know, uh, in the late 80s, as everyone was wrestling with how do you, how do you bring a democ democracy to this a country like South Africa? And so, um, and then we saw the, I witnessed the end of the Cold War. I fought in the, the war uh, as a young 18-year-old before the end in, in the Cold War in, in, in Angola. And, um, and then you had the end of the Cold War and, and everything that went after that. So you had the liberation of South Africa, the end of the Cold War, the, the, the re-establishment of the sub-Saharan region, which is what, why I created Rangold Resources. And, you know, we've got a cycle. We've, we're seeing the change and the pressures of socialism in South America at the moment. There's lots of that. But, you know, whether it's Argentina or Nevada, as you know, Nevadans uh, sought to really punish the mining industry uh, last year. And we engaged with them and we taught them about who we are, brought them up to northern Nevada. And, you know, and, 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 I, and we, we made it a real live thing. And, 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 and we got a, we built a friendship, we built a bridge and the same in Tanzania, you know, Barrick had a few challenges, uh, you know, it created a bit of a, a number of uh, frontiers and we had to go out there and, and work with them. And, and every time you go and meet with people and you meet with the leadership and you make yourself part of the, you know, you advocate for who you are, because when you do that, you better be right because otherwise people will hold, you know, they'll punish you. And, and I think that's really the building block of that. And I, you know, when I speak about it, I'm as, I've just watched young people and old people within Barrick embrace this. And, and, you know, sure, we've got anti-mining groups and we've got people who have criticisms or don't share the same views as us. But if we embrace everyone in a, and, and are proud and can demonstrate what we do makes a difference, changes people's lives there are very few people will will continue beating you excellent mark we're so appreciative of your time we're closing in here on the final few seconds one game i do like to play when we have leaders of the industry on is a game called bull or bear 
I'm just going to rapidly fire off some broad themes, and you tell me whether you're bullish or bearish on what I throw out to you. The first right. one, a gold executive, you got to ask, the U.S. dollar, bull or bear? Bear. COVID-19 remaining a negative societal factor through 2022. Now, I don't know if, how do I answer that? It's not going to be a negative. Okay, so you are bearish on that statement, but you're bullish on society overcoming it. <laughs> that was, I agree, I didn't frame that one very easily. China as the world's imminent superpower. Are you bullish or bearish on China becoming the next imminent superpower? No, I'm bearish. Excellent. Cryptocurrencies. Yeah, completely bearish. <laughs> I, I would hope so. And the, the final one, we parsed this one out a little bit from cryptocurrencies, blockchain. So blockchain is important in, in a new global currency. You know, we're moving to, to electronic money. And, you know, so there's a definitely. And, uh, and you know, the, we essentially have uh, central bank electronic money already but it doesn't have the, the necessary uh, security that blockchain or that type of technology brings. Mark, again, we are so appreciative of both your time and your insights. Have a great rest of the day. And thank you again. Anthony, thank you very much. on crypto mark bristow you wound me you wound me uh, but hey that's what he thinks and who knows maybe he's right anyway thank you once again for joining us on the northern miner podcast we have many more interviews lined up just like this exclusive content very happy to present it to you thank you for joining us and let's hope for that santa claus rally coming up hope you enjoy your week if you want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends and online and until next week, take care.